we're going to start talking about uh, the other cycle, the cycle of poverty and, um, yeah, the cycle of poverty and sin that enslaves the black community here in Detroit uh, and leads to generations of pain and suffering. And we're going to discuss how, as Christians, we can escape that cycle and how we can empower other people to do so. Um, so, before I start, I just want to know that this is a really uh, hard topic to discuss and... Uh, in not least because I'm, you know, I myself, I'm white and privileged, and that's, you know, uh, so it's difficult to kind of carry on that conversation. But uh, I want to uphold truth and, and put before you the idea that uh, sin is sin. So when we point to sin, it's sin. And uh, the sins of, of the poor and black in this community are largely the same as the sins of, of wealthy and, and white people. Um, but here today, we're here to talk about the sins of this community. Um, yeah. So, uh, so rich, rich white people in the suburbs, they've got the same, um, same issues with pride and insecurity and entitlement and pain that we're going to be talking about. Uh, but you know, Ecclesiastes 10:19 says, "Money is the answer for everything." And what I think Solomon means when he says that is that money allows us to hide our imperfections. Okay. Um, so, kind of reset. Basically. It's all the same sin. Why dig up the junk of this community? Um, and why talk about the sin here? This is, this is who we are. This is who we're called to love and serve. This is your neighbors. This is what your children will know as they grow. This is some of you. Um, this is our community, and we're going to talk about it. Okay? Um, so, yeah, it works. All right. All right, so I'm going to start with Colossians 2.8. So you see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, um, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Um, there's a lot of deceptive philosophies and a lot of lies circulating in this community. One of them, uh, which some of you may have heard of, um, maybe not, is, is this movie, that, this DVD, kind of bootleg DVD you see for sale in various places called It's a Damn Shame. Um, it's about this group called the Illuminati uh, that supposedly uh, control the world. You know, their goal is to create a hell on earth. They killed Tupac and Michael Jackson. Uh, they control who becomes president. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, basically they create a world where it's impossible for us to escape poverty. Um, and they hold us back uh, from. Uh, through uh, economic and political domination. The situation's hopeless. There's nothing you can do. Um, basically, it, you know, this seems ridiculous to those of us who are raised in you know, a privileged situation, who, who are raised with opportunities. But it's, it's powerful here because it resonates with the sense of hopelessness and pain that's felt in this community. Um, and, and like so many deceptive philosophies, it takes something that's true uh, Namely, there's pain and hopelessness and sin, and it, it twists it and says, you're powerless, there's nothing you can do, these people control you, uh, so you just, you know, lay down and die, basically, live for today, you know. Um, it, it, it absolves the poor and black person from any responsibility to work towards social justice and racial harmony. Um, so... Yeah, okay. So, before we go there, okay. So this community is um, held down 
This community is held down by the weight of history, by continuing oppression uh, from outside, uh, by racism and economic disenfranchisement, by sin, by alcohol, by violence, by abuse. This community is held down by this cycle of poverty that rules here. And it's this culture that we're here to break down and expose. Okay? The foundation of sin anywhere and in anyone is, is the substitution of self for God, the placing of myself ahead of God. Um, this is the sin of Adam and Eve. It's a sin in each one of you, uh, rich and poor. Uh, but, so we're talking about this community. Well, okay. So Romans 1.18 is, is a good place to start any discussion of sin. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but became but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. For although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, and reptiles. Uh, sin, taking what is God's glory and making it our own. Uh, pride is at the center of our discussion here. Um, pride and entitlement. So I'm kind of buzzing, I think. All right, entitlement. We use this word to describe the attitude of people in our community a lot. You hear it thrown around. Uh, what does it mean? Entitlement literally means to have the title to, to be given the right to. Uh, so, just talking about history, blacks in this country have endured years of oppression and hardship, um, from the brutality of slavery, to the complete segregation of the Jim Crow era, to the segregation of cities like Detroit in the middle of the last century, as blacks fled the South to escape the burdens of hardship and oppression there, and people here greeted them with the same segregation and the same oppression. Um, in the 1960s, you know, all of that began to change as Martin Luther King captured the conscience of the political establishment and blacks suddenly gained a voice, a political voice. Um, and they began to receive, as the oppressed, uh, certain advantages um, because the government uh, began to pour resources into, into black communities. Um, and so it became politically, economically, socially advantageous um, in some cases, to claim oppression. Uh, so, I feel like I'm going really fast. <laughs> All right, so with Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson was president in the 60s. Um, he, he, began, he declared war on poverty, uh, and money began to flow into the black communities. Uh, suddenly, there was money for welfare, for housing assistance, for food stamps, for all sorts of social programs. Um, the catch was, though, that to get, keep getting that money, these communities had to remain poor. Right? They had to remain poor. Okay? Uh, and so over time, that money that continued to flow, uh, welfare, food stamps, rent assistance, it became a way of life, and the poor communities here became incapable of surviving without it. Um, and they lost the social structures like the church and community groups that cared for the poor uh, prior to that. Um, and so 
through this, black leaders became kind of co-opted in a lot of cases into the government. Uh, and they became voices speaking out against oppression and for more government intervention and more government money and uh, more programs for the poor. And in the process, they began to exalt this idea of, or lift up this idea of, of the black person in the inner city as hopeless, as helpless, as of capable, incapable of caring for themselves. Um, and so they lost the ability to challenge their people and to challenge the people here to move on towards good, good works. Um, and it's become ingrained in this culture that, that you know, different ideas like you know, disability or unemployment is better than work. You know, that, uh, that going on welfare is better than turning to your family. Um, that being on food stamps for life is a normal thing um, for, for a lot of people in this community. That accepting foster children is a financial decision um, rather than, than one to care for people. Um, and we see that in Detroit, the legacy of this time period. Um, there's a sense of entitlement that dominates here. Um, the sense that the government exists to give us money, uh, to serve us. And the sense that you know, people from outside the community, uh, you know, white people or, or wealthier blacks or whatever from outside this community exist to pour resources into this community and to help serve. And, you know, it's not... Um, and, you know, we fight against that at Mac Ave when we have outreaches. Like we were talking about the backpack outreach just a little bit ago. You know, that's, that's us here in the community reaching out to our neighbors and our community. And that's what we want it to be about. And we don't want it to become, you know, just, you know, we deserve help from outside. So somebody else has given us all backpacks. You know, we want to avoid that idea. Um, so anyway, this sense of entitlement. Um, let's see. Yeah. So this sense of entitlement is born of pride. Because okay? essentially what it is, is um, so to ask for help or to acknowledge need um, is a sign of weakness. It's to acknowledge, I don't have it all together. Um, I need somebody else. It's vulnerability. Um, and so the sense of entitlement is a denial of vulnerability. It's saying, um, I can claim assistance as a right and so I can avoid the inconvenience of having to acknowledge my imperfections. It says, I have the right as an oppressed person, um, so don't feel sorry for me, don't help me, just give me what I deserve. Um, and, it, and it eliminates any sense of vulnerability or openness and leads to this kind of like protection of your own image as strong and just deserving of this government, you know, government or outside or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Um, there's no letting get down your guard. Um, because to do so is to admit need. Uh, entitlement allows us also, uh, it elevates the self. You know, it says, I'm the most important. Okay? And what that does is it allows me to take what I want. Um, so if you have a right to something, you can just take it, right? And you don't have to worry about who you're taking it from or who's getting hurt in the process. Um, so it's this elevation of stuff, self, and it leads to a destructive process where people are taking, 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 downward spiral, okay? Um, and an example of this, a good example of this, uh, is, is electricity. How many of you know somebody on your block, your next-door neighbor, right in your community that's, that's hooked up illegally to the power grid? Okay? Every time we do an alley cleanup, we find somebody, sometimes more than one, who are hooked up illegally to the power grid, who are getting their power for free. Okay? Why? Is it, you know, it's accepted by a lot of people in this community, that it's okay. 
You know, if you can, if you, can you should get what you can. You, know, you should get yours today. You should get it now. Right. And what's the effect of that? Well, I mean, it's destructive. Right? Because who has to pay for it? You know, everybody else in the community. You know, the, the electric company isn't passing on the cost of stolen electricity, you know, to somebody out in, you know, Ann Arbor or Lansing. Like, they're passing it on to the people in the community. And so we pay more for electricity because, you know, it's being stolen and taken. Um, So, in short, entitlement and pride that rule this community are destroying it um, and destroying any hope of rising up out of the ashes to become a place again where people want to live. So, so we're going to talk about today Ephesians 2. Um, I'm going to start with verses 1 through through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. All right, so let's look at, as we think about that, kind of think through that as we look at the effects that entitlement has on our community. Okay? Identity. This community suffers from an identity crisis. Um, Entitlement engenders dependence. Despite the sense of entitlement, the fact remains that this community is dependent on people outside of it to keep it going. This in turn leads to insecurity, uh, feelings of insecurity, inadequacy, fear, anger. So we get this negative self-image. And what's the effect of that? so there's this identity crisis. Um, so, so I ask, you know, where do you find value? Right? Where do you find your identity? Okay, as Christians, we're called to find our identity in Christ. But what's the effect in this community um, of this sense of inadequacy or insecurity? Um, you know, and we see it all around us. You know, from relatively benign, such as buying a uh, guy who buys $150 sneakers, cruises around in his tricked-out car, you know, while his kids go without dinner, you know, um, to the depressing, you know, young girls selling their bodies and futures for the momentary pleasure of being wanted, you know, um, to destructive, young men selling talent and energy to, to the guy in the corner for, you know, a few bucks, the image of cool, you know. Uh, this identity, you know, I want each one of you to think about uh, as we go through, where do you find your identity? Okay. Is it in Christ or is it in something else? And this is true, again, let's say it again and again through this talk, this is true for everybody. You know, if you're rich and white and you live out in the suburbs, you know, it's still true for you. Where's your identity? Okay. But we're talking about here now, and there's a lot of sin in this community. All right. So, destruction. Uh, we talked about it a little bit, kind of mentioned it. Entitlement is the elevation of self. Uh, it says, I can take my own rights, pushes down the rights of others. When I see anything as my right to take, the property of others is no longer safe. see it in the theft of cars for pleasure, um, the setting of fires in unoccupied buildings, 
theft and security for uh, grocery stores, gas stations. Ask yourself, why is everything more expensive here? You know, this is the cycle of poverty. Why is everything more expensive? Okay. Why, is, why, why is food more expensive at a grocery store? Because they have to pay the security costs for people who are stealing, right? Or for people who, you know, um, the electricity we talked about, uh, rent. Why is rent more expensive? Because people rent a place and see it as theirs, and then they trash it. You know, and then so every time the land, every time the apartment flips, the landlord has to replace the carpet and repaint the walls. Sometimes redo the walls, redo the kitchen. You know that that's something that happens because people see it as theirs to trash for you know a year or six months or you know whatever length of time. Okay. All right. Hopelessness. Um. This community is largely without positive role models. Okay. Um, we don't see around us a lot of people who have risen out of the cycle of poverty, um, death, and destruction. Why? Mainly because everybody who figures it out, figures out how to get out, gets out. You know, most of the people that figure out how to escape this cycle of sin and destruction leave the community. Um, and so. For you know, one consequence of the success of the civil rights movement was the creation of a black middle class, and that middle class left the inner city as soon as they were able. In Detroit, we saw you know we talk a lot about the great white flight, but really what we're talking about is a great resourced flight, because you know black small business leaders left at the same time that the whites did. Um, as soon as they could get out, they did. Um, and so with them, they took the intellectual capital and social and economic stability of this community. Um, the effect is that there's just little hope here for the regeneration of the community among people who live here. Um, there's little hope for their ability to get out. And because of there's little hope, today becomes the most important day. And there's this sense of immediacy. Um, if there's no hope for today, or if there's no hope for tomorrow, today's all that's left. So get yours now while you can. Okay. And you see this all the time in this community. Get yours now while you can. Okay. Um, and I want to challenge this way of thinking, um, this last line here. To deny the power of God to change this community, to change your life, is sinful. Um, if, if, we don't, if we deny the power of God to renew this community, okay, we're, we're, you know, that's, that's wrong way of thinking. Okay. That's a sinful way of thinking. All right, all right. Race, racism. A further result of this entitlement is the is the perpetuation of the us versus them mentality. Okay. In this community, um, so racism means to foster or promote the idea that there are inherent differences between the races for your own benefit. Okay. Black leaders, in particular. Um, do this all the time. Right. Us versus them language. Black versus white. They use it to prop themselves up, to justify themselves, sometimes for financial benefit. Um, and the result is a culture that sees itself as at war with the other, or in opposition to the other, okay. um, with those who are not black. And it engenders anger, hatred, and resentment towards those who are not black. Okay. Um, and holding on to that position of the press maintains the racial divisions that we're trying to fight against here. It maintains the racial divisions and inhibits spiritual, spiritual growth. Okay. Um, 
so, a good example, you know, there, there, there was at least one person, or many people, who saw this kind of uh, destruction of black culture uh, in the black community coming ahead of time. In 1965, there was this guy, um, let me see if I got it, yeah, named uh, Daniel Moynihan. He ended up being a senator from New York. But at the time, he was working in the government, uh, for the federal government, and he wrote a report describing the trends in black inner-city culture um, and the instability of black family structure. Um, And he urged black leaders to begin to address the issues of family breakdown, uh, violence, education, poverty. He said, you need to work on, you know, we need to address this. Uh, and the response was explosive. Black leaders labeled him as racist and said he was incapable of speaking to black culture. They said, you can't criticize us because we're black. Uh, they said, don't blame the victim. This began, began a long pattern of black leadership labeling anything that hinted at criticism of black culture and individuals as racist. Um, so it's very difficult now for anyone, um, especially somebody from outside the community, to c- criticize something that's perceived as black. Um, but we see political leaders, um, black political leaders, survive by stoking these fires of racial division, entitlement, resentment. Okay? Um, they feed on the racism of the culture. They reserve their worst language for anyone who dares to suggest that the black community is not healthy. Um, a couple examples. Last week, during the election, I don't know if you saw, there were flyers circulating around the community that had the black ballot, uh, the black-approved candidates. Um, they weren't all black, but they were the black-approved candidates. Um, How about Kwame Kilpatrick? Um, Everybody knew he was stealing from the city, right? Everybody knew that, um, you know, he was destroying the city government, and yet we vote, you know, people here voted for him, and why? You know, um, voted for his re-election. Why? Because he was black, and there was this sense that, you know, we need to cheer him on ignore his lack of morality, ignore his lack of concern for the city, ignore the fact that he was just in it for himself and vote for him because he's black and he's a black candidate. So um, the last effect of this that I want to talk about is, is the lack of social justice. Um, when we elevate the self, uh, we center on I, me, mine. It's all about getting yours. It's all about my rights, as an oppressed person. Um, And there's little concern paid to those who are less fortunate. Now, I don't want to suggest that there's nobody in this community who cares for those who, for the poor, for the down and out, because there are, you know, you see it. um, I know there are people in the community that that work to feed the poor, you know, um, pass out Thanksgiving meals. You know, you don't have to hang out very long at a gas station to see people who are, you know, know, see somebody give a dollar to the homeless guy or something. You know, but by and large, if you look at the down and out in this community, um, they're not cared for. Um, if you go into the nursing homes where we put the elderly in this community down on West Grand Boulevard or on um, Cadillac, you should go in sometime and see the effect, see the, the situation of the people there. Um, we're not caring well for them. Um, if we look at children, you know, children whose parents have abused them, they've been taken away from the home, they're valued for the money that the state pays. I'm talking about like foster care and stuff. You know, not for taking care of, taking care of children. And so they end up in the same cycle of abuse over and over again. Um, this again, it's not universal, but this is a general statement that if we look around, I think you'll see the truth of it, that, that there's, there's a lack of concern um, for those who are less fortunate. 
And, you know, the strongest evidence for that um, is neglect of the poor elsewhere. Um, yeah. I mean, this community, you know, if, if this community had that uh, concern for the poor and the down and out, we would be sending money like nobody's business to, you know, Africa, to, to other areas of the world where there are people that are actually experiencing, like, extreme poverty. Um, anyway, okay, time to move on. All right, so uh, next I have a picture. Um, so, all right, this picture, I hope, illustrates a lot of the points that I have. This guy here... Um, is a, a guy that I know, um, and this was posted on his, his Facebook page. Um, but he's very talented. Uh, he mixes music and stuff. He's, he's smart. He finished high school. Um, he's, he's a natural leader. Um, and he's got a lot of potential. Uh, but what's it being wasted on? And it's being wasted on this protection of image. Um, it's being wasted on violence, on drugs, on um, and, and and this comes from this sense of hopelessness that's felt in this community. You know, if this guy had hope for tomorrow, if he thought that he could make it out, you know, or make it, you know, if he had hope for tomorrow, he wouldn't be doing this, right? This is not this is not the action of somebody who has who has hope. Um, yeah, so, um, but <laughs> what I want to bring back home is, you know, most of you are thinking, well, you know, I don't take pictures of myself with, you know, big guns or, you know, I don't sell drugs and, you know, <laughs> like, I, that's not me, right? You know, a lot of you are thinking, like, that's not me. Well, okay, but what allows this and what allows the waste of this talent and potential? It's our acceptance of these ideas, this idea of entitlement. It's the community sin that allows this. Okay? And it's the fact that we're not reaching out to help the down and out, to help educate kids, to get them out, to get them... Uh, yeah, we're not investing in the leaders of the next generation. We're not... You know, and this community is not... Um, yeah, it's basically the community-level sin that's allowing this to happen. Okay? So, just to go back, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we are by nature objects of wrath. All right. This is a brutal description of the culture I've been describing following the ways of the world, worshiping the kingdom of the air, to gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature, dead. Okay. Dead like the people we see around us in this culture. Dead like um, caught in the cycles of sin and alcoholism, sexual and physical abuse, prostitution, drugs, gangs, violence. Okay. Cycles that stretch through generations. Okay, amplifying at each turn, generational sin leading to generational sin. Okay. All right. But Paul doesn't stop here. He goes on. And this is where we have hope. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ, made us alive even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. All right. Um, all right. I want to pause just for a second. Okay. Because a lot of you are thinking, you know, maybe this is just another call for conversion. Um, you know, white evangelicals uh, have, in this country have made the mistake again and again of assuming that all that poor people need is conversion and motivation. Um, that all we need is conversion. And, you know, that sort of thinking misses, misses my point. So I agree there are wrongs that need to be righted. The wealthy and white Americans have a huge responsibility, maybe even the majority of the responsibility, to work towards social justice and fight for unity and equality. But what that doesn't mean is that this community gets a free pass on its sin. Okay? What it doesn't mean is that this community uh, can just say, our sin doesn't matter. Okay, we all have a responsibility uh, to work towards social justice and racial reconciliation. The Bible's clear that we're all equally sinful. Um, yeah. The Bible is clear that we're all equally sinful. Romans 2 says um, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. God is an equal opportunity judger, as it were. Um, we all have sin. Uh, there's no degrees of sin when we stand before God. There's no race that gets better treatment. We're either sinful or not, and we're all sinful. Okay. And the black community, particularly its, its leaders, have failed uh, to communicate this truth. Um, they've taken on kind of the mantle of oppression and said, um, said, you don't need life transformation. You don't need to address your sin because you've been wronged, you've been oppressed, and that's simply, simply a lie. Okay. Um, so this passage is much deeper than a simple call for conversion. Okay. See the beauty and the richness here. You were dead, not struggling, not barely making it, not even on your last breath. You were dead and Christ raised you up. Why? In order that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. One. Two, that you may do the good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. Okay? Um, you are raised from, raised from death by Christ, not as a reward for belief, not so that you'd be happy. Um, you are raised to do the good works you were created to do, to work the transforming work of Christ in this community. Okay? Gone is the gospel of this community that says, just believe, you'll be saved and wait for heaven. Okay. Here's the gospel right here that speaks of transformation. Believe and be changed. Believe and be transformed. Believe and work towards the regeneration of this community and of this, of this, of this culture okay, and of these people. Work towards the regeneration. Okay. 
All right. So what does it all mean practically? Okay. How can the black community that's had this history of oppression and fear, that's currently uh, enslaved by this culture of poverty, experience the transforming work of Christ? Okay. I'm not here to get rid of black culture. Okay. We're not here to um, turn you know, this community into a white community. Um, but we are here to figure out how to move from slavery to sin to freedom. Um, how do we take a culture that's weighed down by pride and anger and hatred and resentment and set it free to work the transforming work of Christ? Okay. Continuing in Ephesians, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So what would this look like um, if this culture of poverty, entitlement, and pride was replaced by a culture of humbleness, gentleness, patience, where we bear with one another in love? Okay. Um, for years, you've been taught that circumstances aren't your fault, that the poverty of the city is a result of external forces of oppression, inequality, racism, and history. Um, that the designs of government programs such that keep people in poverty. It's all true. Okay. But what comes next is the lie. The idea that you don't have to or you can't do anything about it. Okay. If you believe this lie, you're giving in to the deceptive philosophy that I talked about at the beginning to tie it back the idea that somebody else is in control and that you have nothing that you can offer. Okay? The, the idea, I talked about the Illuminati as one example, you know, that they're in control of the world, that, they, can, that they, they control who becomes president, they keep you in poverty. It's simply a lie designed to capture you and to hold you captive and to hold you in poverty. Okay? Christ calls us to live a life of love unified by common faith in him. He calls us to a transformed life. And for years, it's been left out of the story. We've been told, wait for heaven. Just survive. God will call you home. But that lie leads nowhere. Even farther from the truth is the idea that some have preached should be saved solely because you are oppressed. Okay? So, application. Kind of running a little low on time here, but... Um, all right. First, love your neighbor. Um, when Jesus was asked uh, what the greatest commandment was, he replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two, two commandments. For Jesus, these two commandments were inseparable. It's not possible to simply love God without loving your neighbor. It's not possible to simply love God without loving your neighbor. Um, This community needs to experience and see the effect that simply seeking the good of someone other than yourself can have.
Okay. Um, we need, in this community, we need role models. Okay. We need to raise up role models, fathers who love their children. Okay. We need uh, individuals who are confident enough in their identity to stand up in the culture. Okay. Um, we, need, uh, we need individuals who are willing to serve the down and out, okay. the impoverished, the elderly. Okay. And we don't simply need individuals coming in from outside. This community, if it's going to experience this change, needs people from within the community to rise up and to become leaders um, in this transformation. Two, forgiveness. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This community needs to experience the peace and joy that comes uh, with granting forgiveness to the one who has wronged you. Okay? I know it sounds a little silly coming from somebody who needs the forgiveness of this community, who's been part of the privileged group that's, that has... Uh, that has in the past worked depression on this community. Um, but it's true. Okay? Forgiving your enemy okay, is what Christ calls us to, and it brings peace to you. Okay? And this is not simply a white, or black, white and black issue, although that's part of it. Okay? This community needs to experience what it's like to forgive your father, your mother. You know, what wrong? Who has wronged you? And who do you need to forgive? Okay. We need to experience the peace that comes with knowing we have forgiven. Okay. And that goes along with number three, reconciliation. Okay. Reconciliation is something that both parties have to be a part of, um, that both blacks and whites need to fight for. Uh, it's not a one-way street. It requires effort by both parties. Okay. But the only thing... Um, so. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Okay. Paul uh, fought for the reconciliation of Gentiles and Jews. Okay. Um, he fought for the idea that inside the church there is one body. Okay. And um, here at MacEv, we need to work towards that same thing. Okay. And this is not just the responsibility of blacks in this community or just the responsibility of whites. It's the responsibility of everybody involved to come together. Okay. Um, and I know, you know, there is, you know, we do, you know, there's a lot of different uh, people in this, in this body. Um, and MacEv does as well as, as pretty much any church I've ever seen in terms of like mixing uh, mixing blacks and whites together. You know, we've got a lot of different... But we still have a division okay, that we need to overcome. Uh, yeah. So, um, the point is, um, is that the only thing that racism, segregation, fear, anger, and hatred need is for regular people not to do anything. Okay? If you don't actively seek ra- racial reconciliation... Um, you will increasingly be less reconciled and less or more segregated. Okay. Um, all right, moving on. Humility and hope. Okay. okay. Um, in this community, 
we talked about entitlement and pride and the sin that, we, where, that wears us down. Okay. What we need is a sense of humility. Okay. Humility and vulnerability seek to reject the entitlement and embrace the vision of the world that sees the needs of others before yourself. Ask for help. Say to your wife or husband or children, I'm sorry for the evil I've done. Um, and leave behind the immaturity that says that what I want matters most. And it's through humility um, and through recognizing that um, what I want doesn't matter most that we begin to have hope in the future. Um, and it's when we begin to look forward uh, to the hope, to tomorrow, and hope in Christ for the regeneration of this community, we begin to see Christ as the actor. Um, yeah. Um, hope. As we begin to see, um, see ourselves as less, and as we begin to accept the humility, we begin to see our need for other people. Okay, we begin to see our need to enter into open and vulnerable relationships. We begin to see our need to enter into discipleship relationships, to see the nurturing and growth of our talents and our abilities to rise out of this poverty and this cycle of sin. Okay. And the last thing um, that I want to talk about is repentance. At the heart of everything I've said today is a desperate need in this community for repentance. The under-resourced black community of this city has a tremendous need for the transforming work of Christ and the restoration of his kingdom, and that can only come through repentance. Okay? No amount of work or investment by the, the highly resourced of other communities um, is going to improve the lot of the poor in this community without the transforming work of Christ here. Okay? And what I mean by repentance is not simply in your mind. Okay? God's not all in your head. This isn't just simply saying, yes, I've done wrong. Okay? Repentance is a much more complex idea than that. And what's required for this, this, this community to grow and to escape this cycle of poverty is to recognize your own sin that's destroying this community. Now I read that again. Recognize your sin that's destroying this community. Recognize your inability to escape by yourself. Okay. Turn towards Christ and embrace the life-transforming change he offers. And then seek the establishment of the kingdom of God. Okay. Through this repentance, okay, you will experience the joy that comes to those who rest in Christ. Now, I can't promise that um, this is, that this community is going to escape poverty. Can't promise that you're going to get a job or that your kids will be given back to you or any of those things. Okay. But I can promise the peace and joy that comes with knowing Christ through repentance. And I can promise that it is my desire and goal to see these things happen, to see the restoration of the community and to be here to work alongside of you. Um, and, and so I want to end just hitting home again as you go out and as you think through this and this goes for people that are from this community and people who aren't from this community where is your sin 
Okay? And how is it destroying community? Um, recognize that sin. Uh, yeah. And when you truly recognize that sin, it will lead to the establishment of the kingdom of God. So, all right. I've gone far over my allotted time. So, uh, yeah. I'm going to step aside. <laughs>